Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hello and welcome. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Kim Wheeler, the executive director of the Red Wolf Coalition, based in Columbia, North Carolina. This podcast episode, I really enjoyed doing. I have been vacationing to northeastern North Carolina and the Outer Banks for my whole life. And only recently did I realize that they were the only population of Red Wolves in the entire world live just a few miles away from that. So I've always wanted to talk about red wolves in particular because I was so fascinated. And part of what I know about them is they are struggling for survival in this particular area. Despite the fact that there are so few numbers and they're so rare and they're so hard to, to even see and spot, the locals in this area are having a difficult time overcoming their fear of the red wolves. And that's part of Kim's job is to represent these wolves as best as possible. We talk about their struggles. We talk about their population trends. When Kim started with the coalition, there were 130. Now there are eight. Um, we talk about you know some hope on the horizon, which you know I've always got to get into every single podcast. But this year will be a really good year for Red Wolves for reintroductions. There's supposed to be nine two mated pairs already, and uh, a family. So there's hope that there will be some offspring this year because there hasn't been for the past three years. We talk about how political this is um, and how hard it is. I mean, she's like a PR firm for Red Wolves, a one-person PR firm for Red Wolves. Um, and we talk about the dangers of the job as a wolf defender, the Red Wolf Coalition is based in a kind of rural area that um, really prioritizes hunting. And a lot of times, Kim has to explain when hunters are frustrated, when they see numbers of deer go down, that they blame it on the Red Wolves, not really realizing how many other things and variables have changed in the past 10, 20, 30 years. Things like new roads, things like just development that are going to impact deer population and impact red wolf population as well. Right now, there's eight red wolves. There's no way that eight red wolves can have such a, a noticeable change on deer population that people would, would not be able to hunt them anymore. It's just not possible. So that's what Kim has to do a lot of that the time is really defend these red wolves and defend a species that has for hundreds of years been villainized. So a lot of times she has to go in and talk to people about how they're scared about wolves and why they, they shouldn't be, why they're timid and docile. And, uh, you know, her working at this red wolf coalition for 16 years, she's only seen half of one in that amount of time. Right. So they're very difficult to spot and there's not, um, of course, there's not a lot of them to begin with. We talk about the dangers of her job as a defender of those wolves. She's been accosted in supermarkets. 
She has been yelled down, um, you know, in her own office. She's been run off the road when she was driving. And I asked her about this, and um, she was very zen about it. She was very um, kind of understanding and, and forgiving about whoever did that to her. So as much as this is a podcast about the Red Wolves, the eight that are in existence, their future, and their past, this is also a podcast about Kim herself and about how she, like a wolf, is very resilient, uh, very fierce in defending them, but also very, I don't know, very zen. It was really impressive talking to her and getting her take on how she, how she does defend these wolves because it is political. It is um, social. I mean, it's everything. Um, a lot of people have no issues with the wolves, but instead they actually are more frustrated that the federal government is telling them that they must protect these wolves. They don't like being told what to do by the federal government, which to me makes me think, well, what if the government told them they'd have to kill red wolves? Would they just, out of resistance to that, not want to kill them? Maybe that's the way to go if, if some people are just standing against the federal government versus for something. But I was really impressed talking with Kim. Um, she has seen it all. And it was really nice to see her positive outlook, right? 2022 is supposed to be a very good year. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is still learning about how they can reintroduce these red wolves into the wild. Because if we just give them half a chance, they could survive. And they could bring more to this area. We talked about Yellowstone, about how Yellowstone really became a wolf gazer's paradise, People would go there to see the wolves specifically, right? And there weren't always wolves there. There weren't wolves there in the 70s. So there weren't, they weren't always there, but they were just giving half a shot. And then people would come and follow. People would bring, you know, tourist dollars and they would come all times of the year instead of just coming to that Outer Banks area, that beachy area in the summer. People would be there all the time. So there's a lot of arguments, clearly, for keeping wolves, just none of, uh, you know, not the least of which them being so damn cool. Um, so we talk about all of them. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please like, rate, review, subscribe. All of that stuff helps. Trust me, I don't put up too many of these, so I'm not going to bombard you at all if you subscribe. And if you have a little bit of time, go check out redwolves.com, uh, her website. And kind of learn a little bit more if you are interested. Again, I think it's they're very fascinating. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Kim Wheeler of the Red Wolf Coalition. Well, hey, Kim. Thank you so much for having me here at the Red Wolf Coalition. Well, thank you, Brian, for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm excited to talk with you about Red Wolves today. Yeah. And uh, this is something I've been excited to kind of talk about for a while. Like we even started pretty much dove into it before... Uh, you know, we started recording, but um, first, I'm really curious about like the Red Wolf Coalition itself. How long has it been around? How is what is your involvement with it? How long has that spanned? And, and what are your potential uh, um, goals with the organization? Sure. So this is a big year for the coalition. We are actually celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. Um, the coalition was started by one of the Red Wolf biologists that saw a need for education and outreach beyond what the Fish and Wildlife was doing. 
And so we've always just been focused on red wolves, only red wolves 24-7. Our mission, we are an advocate for the long-term survival of red wolf populations through education and outreach and to foster public involvement. I always tell people the front end of that is really easy, the education and outreach, but the public involvement sometimes can be a little bit difficult. But um, we've been here in Columbia. We're the only nonprofit that is headquartered here in Columbia. There are other nonprofits that have um, staff that come in and out, but we're the only one that that lives here and has, I've been with a coalition for 16 years now. So I've been here during the good times, the peaks in the valley. So um, we are um, very entrenched in this community. I am involved in community activities. I felt like when I got here, that was really important for people to see me just beyond what my day-to-day work is, but my involvement and my, um, my commitment to this community. So 16 years, I'm sure you've seen a lot in that amount of time. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the history of Red Wolves as it pertains to this area? Like that was something we were talking about before that I was really interested Mm -hmm. about that. For years and years, I didn't even know what Red Wolves were. I didn't even know, you know, their numbers. And I didn't even know that they happened to just be in this particular Mm -hmm. small area in, in coastal North Carolina. So I'm definitely interested about how they got here and, and what their population numbers are now. So I think when I do a program, one of the coolest things I get to say is, did you know that you are standing in an area at the home of the only wild red wolf population in the world? There's just not that many times that we get to say that. And I just think that's very, very cool to be able to say that. Um, so there are documents back to the 1700s where there were bounties paid for red wolves in Tyrrell County, which is in Columbia, where you are now. And so we know that there were red wolves historically back that far. Um, the current population is eight known wolves. Um, when I started in 2005, there were about 130. So as I mentioned before, we've had some peaks and valleys and we're in a valley right now, but I, I do feel very optimistic with the year in 2022 that um, we're going to see things turn around for the Red Wolf program. Um, There's a lot of positive things happening, um, a lot of things that the field staff is doing. And then at the end of the day, it's really up to the wolves themselves, which has proven to be incredibly resilient animals. So we're very excited about that. The, The Red Wolf program first started here in 1987 and Funny enough, they started with eight wolves, um, which is exactly where the population is today. So um, Fish and Wildlife knows what to do. Um, They have, I think, the advantage now of 30-plus years of experience. Um, I would suspect there isn't very much that they see now that they haven't seen in the history of this program. So that's why I said I feel very optimistic. I feel like there's been a shift within the service, that there will be some good attention given to this program, and that they will get the resources they need to move it forward. So I I am very optimistic. Um, The history of the program, um, again, we started with eight wolves. Um, They first were released at Alligator River National Wildlife Wildlife Refuge. But if you've been there, you know, there's no bound, you know, wolves don't know boundaries, there's no fences. And so eventually the wolves did expand. The Fish and Wildlife also did some releases to expand from Alligator River to Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge. 
in that 16-year history, the wolves did leave the, the, the refuge. And at one point in time, the recovery area was between 60 and 65% private landowner. So that private landowner relationship with the wolves and the service um, has to be a good relationship. And that's something I'm sure as you and I talk, we'll talk a little bit more about how that has peaked ebbed and flowed a little bit and where the service is now. And again, I think, I think their head is in the game and they're trying to do some things, but again, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little more in detail. Yeah. Wow. And I didn't know. So I knew the numbers were low. I wanted to say 18 was the figure I heard last. So that's that's the estimate. And so they know right now the wolves wear an orange tracking collar. That's something new that they're doing. And so they think in the last couple of years, because there's been a shift with those landowner relationships, they've not been able to get on as much private property. So they know there were wolves out there that they think probably bred, and they just were not able to get their hands on them to collar them. So based on the population numbers they knew before these landowners started not allowing them on their property, that's why they think there's probably maybe 18 or 20 actually out there. But we know of eight that wear a tracking collar. Wow. And so this is eight that are wild mm-hmm. that can we can attest, not just in this area, but in the entire world. There's eight wild red wolves that we can attest to. Correct. Wow. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's just, scary. Yeah. It's 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 been scary in the last sixteen years, probably since twenty twelve, to really see that population number go down. I mean, in twenty twelve, we lost ten percent of the population due to gunshot. When I say we, I mean the collective we. Sure. Because we all if any of us work and pay federal tax dollars, those federal tax dollars go into the endangered species program. So these animals are ours. So when I say we, I mean we as the collective we. And so t- losing 10% of a population is a lot, especially when it was a very fragile population to begin with. Yeah, especially as it's like, when I think of America, I think of bald eagles and I think of wolves, right? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. other, you know, I, I think of bears, but I would really think just how resilient wolves are. Um, like well, they know, have just, such an iconic... Yeah presence in when when like sometimes when I do a program I'll say I'm going to say the word wolf and you tell me what your first thought is lots of times it's snarling they're going to attack me and um just aggressive but then I have the other side that's patriotic and those sort of warm and fuzzy feelings that wolves evoke they're they're very much one end of the spectrum to the other but I agree with you it's it's very iconic. I, I think of that lone wolf in the snow walking with the yep. wind blowing, you know, <laughs> yep, that yeah. to me, or a lone wolf on a tall mountain howling. We've mm-hmm. all seen that silhouette. And so that's just, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's it's <laughs> just what comes to our mind. Yeah, I've, uh, I often joke like I would have, like I was the wolf kid in high school. You know, I'd have like those <laughs> Good wolf for you. shirts. Good yeah. for you. That's yeah, I'd awesome. I'd wear one now if I had them. But yeah, but yeah it's just so... To me, it's um, it is fascinating when people don't see it that way. But there's always another side to it. Yeah. Um, but uh, before that, like I was curious, like what is their territory? You mentioned it's about sixty five percent private. What are we talking about in terms of uh, square mileage? roughly kind of uh that they're able to so the recovery uh, the restoration area is five counties here in northeastern north carolina Mm -hmm. beaufort dare hyde terrell and washington counties so that's about 1.7 million acres um currently 
the population because they're lower um, are pretty much residing at Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge and Pocosin Lakes. I do believe there probably are one or two on some private lands, but it's nothing like 60% of this range here in Northeastern North Carolina. Um, they're actually getting ready to do some releases of captive wolves probably sometime next month. And we're looking at doubling the population. There's going to be nine wolves that are moved from captivity um, and will be released into the wild. And mm. again, I don't know if this is a great time to talk about that or so. Yeah, let me go ahead and tell you about that. Um, so these rela releases came about through litigation. These are court ordered. Um, actually, of April of 2021, they released four animals from captivity. Unfortunately, um, um, the majority of them were killed by vehicle strikes. So that's a disadvantage when you're releasing adult wolves from captivity. It takes them a little bit to get to know the territory. In captivity, they don't know about roads. They don't know about cars. This is something that has happened since this program started because we started with captive wolves. Right. And so um, this release that they're going to do now They've tweaked it and it's going to be much better. So those first wolves that were released in April, these were single animals and they were brought together with another animal to form a pair. They didn't know each other, no history. The problem with that is when they open those acclimation pens, the wolves may go in opposite directions, which is what happened. They're just like us. They want to pick their own mates, not necessarily who we pick for them. So this release that's going to happen in these nine animals, two of the pairs are already bonded. They are already together. We know they like each other. Pretty much feel like when those, at those gates are opened and they're set free, they're going to stay together. The other five is a, is a family group of five. So it's a breeding pair and their offspring. I'm not sure how old those offspring are, if they're going to be yearlings this year or they're going to be two years old. So you know when you open the gate, they're going to stay together. So the Fish and Wildlife really has given these animals a better chance for success versus what happened in April. April wasn't the best time either to be releasing them. This time of the year is breeding season. So when love is in the air, animals have a tendency to want to pair up. And so, again, these animals are already pair bonded, so we feel like they'll stay together. The goal of this litigation was reproduction. Last year was the third year we had no reproduction in the wild. Oh, wow. So that's really hard to grow a population. There are mechanisms like releasing adult wolves and also pup fostering. So pup fostering is when you take a captive wolf and put it in with a wild den but you got to have a den. You've got to have a mother that's given birth. Yeah, and you can kind of just swap it in, and a lot of times they'll take care of it, right? They've done it every time. <sighs> Wolves are the best. And mom <laughs> bolts out of the den when the guys do their work really quick. Um, and when she comes back, she doesn't go, wait a minute, I had three and now I had four. I mean, she's accepted and raised them up. The coolest thing I got to see is I got to go out one time um, looking for dens with the field staff. They were kind enough to take me. And what was really neat is they were going to foster a puppy. And the female that we were fostering into, she was a fostered puppy. Oh, so wow. it's like it came full circle. I know it gives me chills. Yeah. <laughs> um, to me, that was just so incredibly cool to think about that it had come full circle. Mm. She was fostered and now she's going to get a fostered <laughs> animal. So I thought that was, to me, again, one of the highlights of my 16 years here.
Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so where, where are these wolves coming from? Um, so they came from the um, Species Survival Plan participants, the zoos and nature centers. I do not know off the top of my okay. head which facilities um, these animals are coming from. Gotcha. And it's also interesting how like fish and wildlife is still learning lessons. Like it seems like last year, I mean, you know, they've been at it for a while, but like there's still lessons to be learned. Hopefully this year could be a little bit better, but um Science yeah. is like that. I mean, it's that's true. Yeah, we sometimes I forget that a lot. That I think science is very clear cut, um, and in some respects it is. But when you're dealing with an animal that has its own free will, just yeah, like us, yeah. we don't we don't always do what we think we should do or what we think somebody else should do. Um, and wolves, I think, are the same way. And um, that's what I love about the field staff. I mean, they are rocks, ultimate rock stars to me because if you think about it, when these wolves hit the ground in 1987, there was no roadmap. It had never been done. Every challenge that they have hit, they have been able to find a way to address it. You know, in 1999, they saw, they were beginning to see hybridization with coyotes. Yeah. And so they stepped back and came up with an adaptive management strategy to help combat that. And in a nutshell, it is, they will go out and trap for coyotes, sterilize that animal, and then put it back in its home range. So it can't breed with other coyotes. It can't breed with red wolves. And hopefully it will hold its territory from any transient animal. So it's two things. It helps with the hybridization, but it also helps with the control of that coyote population. Yeah. And to me, that was amazing. You know, that group of scientists came together and said, okay, let's throw this against the wall and let's see if this works. And it's worked. And it's, and pup fostering was another first. And there's, I know the Mexican wolf program uses pup fostering right. and there's another animal, but I cannot remember what it is. Yeah, it doesn't. I, yeah, they. Um, I remember hearing about the Mexican uh, gray yeah. wolf as well, um, but yeah, that whole in or that whole uh, crossbreeding into extinction potentially is very very interesting. Um, but it seems like the solution y'all came to when it comes to um, sterilizing the coyotes yeah. is a very important one because isn't that part and we can dive into it now but because there's a lot of resistance to wolves in this mm -hmm. area and, and beyond but isn't that part of it where a lot of people are um you know will 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 deliberately hunt what they think is a coyote or what they claim to think is a coyote and then it actually turns out to be a red wolf well brian i want to caution you we work really hard not to categorize anybody that has killed a red wolf with a gun as a hunter, mm, yeah. because um, I think that's really a mistake. We don't know who these people are. It happens outside of hunting season. So our hunting season is October to December, like other places. Wolves have been killed outside of hunting season. And so we're really careful to just say, hey, we don't know who it is. There, in the 16 years I've been here, there have been red wolf deaths due to gunshot because they found the carcass. Um, some have been investigated, some have not. Nobody's ever been prosecuted. So we don't know who they are. Wow. And so I just caution you to be, we just want to be mindful with saying hunters. Yeah, sure. There are hunters that are great stewards of the land. I mean, really good, that really understand the role of a top predator in an ecosystem. And so it's really hard because I think those of us in the conservation world 
want to give them a name, but we don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so I try very hard not to not to do that, but just say gunshot mortalities, whoever's doing, whoever's pulling the trigger is mm -hmm. pulling the trigger. So, and it's tough because I think it happens. I've had people that are really against the program say, I don't hate the wolves, it's the government. I don't like telling me what to do, what I can and cannot do. But what's really cool about the Red Wolf program is there is no critical habitat designation, which means you can do whatever you want on your property. It's not like if you get a red cockaded woodpecker in your trees and want to cut them down, you can't. There's no habitat designation with a Red Wolf. If you want to grow sunflowers, then grow sunflowers. Just because a wolf might use your territory, you can still do whatever you want to do. Wow. And that's a point I really try to, with locals especially, remind them or educate them on that point. Okay, that's interesting. And that's a good distinction I'm glad you made because, I don't know, sometimes I throw out the term hunter, but you're right. Hunters can sometimes be the best, the, the, the biggest conservationist, like Teddy Roosevelt. They could be the absolutely. biggest conservationist. So, I mean, yeah. look at all the land he set aside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But he was a hunter, but still, it, it's he had. We human beings have many sides to us, and so again, I just we try to be really careful about not giving some designation of totally. identifying these people as X, Y, Z. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned like mortalities and kind of keeping track of that. Do you have? Do you can you break it down based on what um, like cause of death is the most dominant? I probably could if I had known you were going to ask me the question. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. <laughs> so the Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife has a, a, a new Red Wolf website. And I believe that information is on there. Okay. Yeah. So it would be gunshot vehicle mortality. I don't know the disease. I mean, I guess you have to include disease because they could right. die of disease. And then just natural causes. Yeah. Um, you know, that's pretty much what... Yeah would cause the death of a red wolf. Um, so, and, and again, like I'm, I find it very interesting that they're here. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit about their ecosystem that they live in? Like it's, it's not easy. Like a lot of it is private land, but of the public land, it's not easy to get to, right? They're in a pretty, you know, inaccessible area, correct? Uh, there can be. So they live in forested swamps, yeah. ag fields, um, pretty much, I mean, there's no mountains or anything like that, but pretty much there's a lot of water. <laughs> Certainly sea level rise is something um, that the service considers when looking at uh, the recovery program here and other recovery sites that they may or may not look at. Um there's plenty for them to eat, which is great. Um, white-tailed deer, rodents, raccoons, nutria. Certainly the smaller animals are a little easier to catch. Um, you'd be surprised at a wolf catching a deer. Um, the percentage is really low that they're successful. Um, so one of the, the myths that we fight here is that the wolves are eating all the deer. Well, we know that's not true because we see deer all the time, but what's happening on the landscape is that the deer are moving around differently because now there's two predators. You got the red wolf and you have the coyote. And so deer are not dumb. They I mean, they certainly recognize that there are other predators on the landscape. And so 
what I think we're seeing is that deer are not out grazing as much as they used to. I know I've heard from locals talking about like a particular property. I used to ride with my grandfather and we would sit for hours watching the deer graze and now we don't see them. And well, they're, the, they're blaming wolves or And they're coyotes. blaming wolves. Yeah, okay. that The wolves are eating all the deer. And so again, we know that's not true because the, the deer population here is plentiful. Their, their behavior has changed. I mean, I think people have to understand ecosystems don't get to a point and then stop. They always change. And so when someone says, I used to watch this go on and there were a lot of deer, you know, my question is what changes have happened on the landscape naturally? and what have been man-made? Is it an area that maybe next to it now is farm fields and there's not as much for them to graze on? So there's a lot of things to look at. You know, eco like I said, ecosystems are not stagnant. Yeah, it's They change all the time. And it's always hard with that anecdotal, like arguing that anecdotal, yes. I used to see this, I used to see, yes. you know, cause you can hit that from either side and- uh, Yeah. It's not, never really scientific, so it's hard to it's hard to. But those are the hardest things to change those attitudes because they're kind. People get dug in that things should be the same. This is a very cultural community, um, generational. Kids just don't leave; they just stay. There's so many people that I talk to that you know they've generations have lived here and so they're used to things being a certain way or seeing things a certain way and then all of a sudden when it's changing without really looking at what outside forces could be changing the environment the land what you're seeing they just see it as changed and there must be some root cause and unfortunately the red wolf sometimes falls into the victim of well it must be the wolves yeah. I mean, I've heard some crazy things that people want to blame on the wolves, and but that's people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what about bears? There are black bears in this area too. Right? They love them. Yeah. Wow. And it's funny because bears actually do crop damage. I mean, they cost farmers money. I love to take pictures and have taken pictures of bears in cornfields where they're just sitting and just pulling down the corn stalks. Well, that all costs them money, but people but love, love bears. I mean, people, I get people that come in here because for a while, um, I was part of a little group that would take people around to see the bears and they would come in and say, Hey, can you take us to see bears today? And depending on whether or not I could, sometimes I will. Um, and it's just funny to me. We just, we humans have a different interpretation of bears even though I worry, would worry more going out at night about a bear than I would a wolf. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I feel like I understand <laughs> both. I feel like if I scared a wolf, it's going to run. And a bear might run, but it just depends what I interrupt it doing. Mm, like yeah. if it's in my trash can and has found um, the remnants of a roast I made two nights ago, how quickly is it going to leave? Right, yeah. So... It just really depends. It's 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 interesting talking to people and their their fears. That's something I've I've learned to handle and address differently than when I first started. When I first started, I thought the wolves were just always right. Like, you're crazy, Brian. Why would you be afraid to go out at night? A wolf's not gonna get you, blah, blah, blah. But now I've learned as I've matured, um, in this job and in conservation work to understand that if you tell me I'm afraid to talk, take my dog out at night, I'm like, okay, I got it. So I have a dog. So this is what I do. I open the door. I talk. I don't let Maya 
off the deck until the light's on. I've made enough noise, hopefully, to scare anything. And I have a flashlight and I stay out with her. You know, I look around. Am I seeing strange scat in the yard? Am I seeing bear scat, something that looks something other than like a dog scat? You know, I just become a little more aware. So I think understanding those fears and accepting that's how you feel. So then I go back and say, is there anything I have in my toolbox that can help you overcome that fear or feel a little bit better about going outside at night or whatever the situation is? Yeah, because that fear doesn't necessarily correlate to a hatred of them or even a, a dislike of them. No. Um, sometimes it's just helping people. Like I'm, I'm like... I have a fear of sharks. I love sharks, but I do. I realize I'm out of my element when I'm in the ocean and, yeah. and uh, they fascinate me, but yep. I respect the hell out of them. Um, Mine so, are snakes. Right, <laughs> exactly. Oh. So it just doesn't mean that, that you don't, uh, it doesn't mean those people are uh, unwinnable in the war, uh, in the public eye. And you know, I would almost rather have somebody that's neutral. Mm. That doesn't hate them, doesn't love them. If you have a question, let me answer your question. I think sometimes they are more reasonable and easier to talk with um, about, you know, what is the value of having a red wolf? What, there's so many reasons why they're valuable. It's a biological, it could be economic, political, cultural. And so sometimes again, in a conversation, I try to figure out, those are kind of my three buckets I put people in. And so if I have a chance to talk one-on-one with somebody, and I can figure out which bucket they're in, then I tend to go that direction rather than, so if, if there's a county commissioner that's con- that is interested in ecotourism, what could ecotourism and red wolves do for our community? Well, I'm not gonna talk to him about the biology. It might be a moment, but I'm gonna talk more economics because that's what he's interested in. But I can only do that when it's kind of one-on-one or a small group. If it's a big group of people, that's a little bit harder. I can touch on each one, um, but it's easier one-on-one. Well, how would you touch on each one? Because I thought about that. Of And to me, it just comes down to, well, even if you're not interested in, in any of the above, it's it's kind of just pride in this area. You've got something special that nowhere else in the world has. I know, has. I know. But how would you touch on each one of those? Because we're right next to the Outer Banks. We're about mm-hmm. an hour away. 90, 95% of people, maybe 98, maybe 99% of the people who vacation there don't know that red wolves are here and they're only here. But that's a whole place, that's a whole area to tap into for ecotourism as Mm -hmm. long as you can do it sustainably. But you can do it all seasons. So I'm just curious, like, what are those, what are those, those things in each one of those buckets that you kind of address that seem to win over the people who might be skeptical? So, so when I look at political wolves right now, across the board, even the gray wolves, um, because they were delisted last year, and um, the the Department of the Interior has said that they will look at it again in a year's time span. From the red list, from the um, from the endangered species, endangered species list, list. So they okay. were delisted, and so delisting is not a bad thing. I mean, that's what you want when you put an animal on the endangered species list. Like the red wolf, they came up with a recovery plan. There was no date that said in 2022, this animal will be recovered. It's a plan. Um, the Fish and Wildlife is in the process of writing a new recovery plan now that I think will be finished by 2023, I think is their time frame. And so, you know, the endangered species came about because the, the American public said, we want something to guide the service 
to try to restore endangered species. It has become very political. I don't know which party supports it more than the other. It, it I could probably speculate, but I'll just leave that one alone. Yeah, <laughs> In this day and call. age, I think it's better. Um, and so there's a lot of people that um, want to make it political because they have political connections. So yeah. it's very political. Biological, that's pretty easy. It's it's important to have a top predator on the landscape. The theory is, you know, they help to keep their prey base, their prey animals in check. Don't know if that's true here. There has never been any research done on the impact of the red wolves here. So Because they're, so, they're such a small population? Nobody's ever done any research about it. Interesting. All the research that's been done, there's never been any study about the ecological impact. And so I tend not to do that anecdotal, you know, well, we right, say right. wolves do this. I could, but I have no science to back it up. And I try to be pretty careful that I have science to back up something that I say. Although sometimes I do say things and then go, hmm, why'd I say that? <laughs> but that's another <laughs> that's story fun. for another day. Um, social, again, it's it's what we were talking about, how people feel about wolves. You love them or you hate them. There's some people that would love for a wolf to be wrapped in bubble wrap and nothing ever happened to them. But we know that's not reality because they're a wild animal and things happen. Economic, again, as I mentioned, you know, look what wolves have done for Yellowstone. They have brought in so much money yeah. for any of your listeners that have been out there, especially in the summer, there are wolf jams. There are so many people out there trying to <laughs> see wolves just riding up and down the road, pulling off the side of the road where they shouldn't. So there are a lot of avenues that I feel like when you're talking to someone, you can at least pique their interest. I don't ever try to change somebody's mind. It's like, I hate Brussels sprouts. I'll never eat right. another one. There's nothing, I don't care what recipe you give me, not going to happen. Yeah. And I recognize that. I saw on Facebook, uh, we had some, uh, not we, we had a gentleman that was at Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge, and he saw a wolf and took some amazing pictures. And there was a gentleman that went on, probably a troll, and he just blasted him. And... I could have easily gone on but and said, hey, let me give you some more information. But I was like, no, there's no change in that guy's yeah. mind. I mean, I'm not going to hit my head against the wall. There's a time and a place, and I just didn't feel like that was a place. But there's a lot of ways. I don't think there's any clear cut. I wish I knew some clear cut answer. I often wish when I wake up one day, I'll, I'll know what to say to people to make it better. And, and human tolerance is a huge challenge not just for wolves in general. I think yeah. top predators, it's just in some cases we see them as competition. Here, being a hunting community, them thinking, oh, the wolves are eating all the deer. There's fewer deer for me to hunt. That's important to some people that fill their freezers. It's even important to outfitters because now maybe – you know, we've gone two years and we don't see as many deer. And so people aren't going to want to come here. So that affects my pocket. So it's a web. I mean, it's you go left and then you go right and then you go back right again. There's so much influence. But for me, I think the key is to just address it when I can address it. Um, yeah. For an outfitter that says, you know, my group hasn't seen as many deer and I think it's all the wolves. Well, what am I going to say? I don't, I don't know where you're hunting. I don't, I don't know where the deer are moving. You know, again, I go back to my basic questions. Has there been any ecological changes in the area where you're hunting? And so 
it's kind of a tough situation sometimes that I find myself in, in having a conversation because there's no set answer. I don't, sometimes I don't even know the question, let alone the answer. And so sometimes that's, that's a little bit difficult, but you know, I just do the best I can answer questions. Um, again, I don't try to change your mind because some people are just like, I hate them. If I could shoot everyone, I would. I'm like, well, I wish you wouldn't. (laughs) I wish you wouldn't, you know, that would be great if you didn't because I, I just don't understand that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. And sometimes if you press really hard on them, like with, uh, I don't know, any any issue, or, or even with, uh, you know, what's happened in the past year and a half yeah. with the COVID, if, if you press hard on anyone, sometimes they will become resistant to that. And, and part Absolutely. of that I get, and part of that's like kind of what wolves are, like yeah. they're they're resistant in some instances. So, um, so yeah, I, I totally get like being cautious around it. And I think what you're doing is the exact right way. It's just finding that common ground that you might have with that person and the shared interest you might have. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, just explaining how cool and how valuable the wolves are. I'm curious about how the, um, like public sentiment has changed. If it has, like, have you seen at least locally in this area, have you seen more people or have you seen there be, you know, have you been able to change minds? Like, have you seen a positive, you know, population aside, but have you seen a positive uh, uh, a change in, in sentimentality towards them? So I think we saw in 2012, um, we were involved in litigation against the state of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, we recognize that um, it's very hard to distinguish a red wolf from a coyote, especially at a distance in a field. And the state of North Carolina uh, Wildlife Resource Commission, who is responsible for our wildlife, our state wildlife, um, had just changed their hunting rules and allowed for night hunting of coyotes. Well, we were already seeing, you know, a loss of 10% of a population, which we thought was during the day. Again, we don't know when the wolf was killed. Um, but we recognized it would be really hard to tell the difference at night. Like you're just seeing a canid. And so we decided, you know, we tried to talk to the resource commission and then, um, there's a plaintiff group, which was the Red Wolf Coalition, Defenders of Wildlife, and Animal Welfare Institute were represented by Southern Environmental Law Center. And we took them to court, the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. That's a hell of a group right there, it by is. the way. It's a big this. group. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. With the, yeah, it was a very interesting, interesting, interesting litigation. Sure. And so they did not want to change hunting rules just in this five counties. And I understood that they didn't, they wanted the hunting rules the same across the board. So if you hunt, you know, these are the rules and they're in every county in North Carolina. But, um, through mediation, um, we were able to reach an agreement. And so here in the five counties, um, there is no night hunting of coyotes. Wow. That's great. Well, that blew things up. Because all of a sudden, landowners said, oh, a federal judge is telling me what I can and cannot do on my property. So that was really the point in time, I would say, the Fish and Wildlife, the coalition, because we're here, um, our PR, our reputation sort of took a nosedive. Again, because we were seen as trying to change what people could and could not do. Um, 
there were individuals that went door to door and just trashed the fish and wildlife. And unfortunately, the service, it is not typically how they operate to defend themselves. And as an NGO here, a non-government organization, I can only defend somebody so much, and then you have to defend yourself. And so that, I think, was probably a key mistake for the fish and wildlife. Really should have come out and addressed some of the things these individuals were saying. And so... There's been, a, since 2012, 2013, a long span of, I hate the government, you know, between what that individual said, what landowners thought, and then just the political yeah. stuff going on in our country and COVID on top of that. Um, I do think that has died down. I do think the fish and wildlife is really starting to work on regaining the trust of local landowners that they used to work with. They developed a new program. It's called Pray for the Pack, P-R-E-Y. Um, and again, in a nutshell, there is some monetary value if you're a landowner um, in a known red wolf area. Um, the Fish and Wildlife will come and talk to you. And there is some money to help you um, um, what is the word I'm looking for? To help you have better habitat on your mm. property for wolves and other wildlife. And there are other stipulations that go along with that. You know, the fish and wildlife will be able to access your property with your permission um, and some other, I don't know all the logistics of it, but I think it's a great start for the fish and wildlife to try to regain the trust of some landowners that that chose to believe some of the nonsense that other people were spewing um, instead of just going back to the service and say, hey, somebody came to my door and said this. Mm. Is it true? I mean, I've been asked some of those things are true and I can either confirm nor deny because we're not the fish and wildlife. Right. You know, I, I can't change that. So has it changed? That's a really good question. I think in my optimistic mind, I say, yes, it has. When things are excited and riled up, it doesn't seem that way because it seems like everybody has a criticism. But when things are kind of quiet and the service is doing their thing and the wolves are doing their thing, I feel like it all becomes very neutral. And I kind of like it there yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little more than I do, you know, yeah. in the heat of the moment. Um, right now, I feel like it's kind of quiet. Are those people out there that hate them still communicating and chit-chatting on a on the internet? I'm sure they are. I just choose not to look at it and see that what our role is and what our responsibility is to help with the conservation of this animal and if I bump up against those people, then I bump up against those people and we have a conversation and it's either pleasant or it's not pleasant. And so I think at some point in time, you just have to say, we're going to keep moving it forward because I, I, I like to think when I lay my head at night on the pillow, I think about what did I do good for the wolf today? Not what makes me feel better, right. but what did I do for the wolf? And, and for us, I think that is just to keep fighting the battle, no matter how easy or tough that battle is every day. It's, that's why we're here. That's why we've been here for 25 years. And that's why we only focus on the red wolf. I couldn't even imagine. I could not imagine focusing on another animal. I know. Like I don't even think I have the strength <laughs> for that. Um, I think my poor little heart couldn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any, um, do you have any anecdotal times where you think you've been able to change someone's mind? Because 
honestly, the first time I heard about red wolves in this area, I was driving to the Outer Banks and I saw a billboard mm-hmm. about how the fish and wildlife lies. And yeah. it was a, a, a fish and wildlife representative, like a caricature with a really mm-hmm. long nose. And it was like red wolves. And then to see more, go to this website that I don't remember, but I wouldn't plug even if I did. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> but um, so, I mean, that was my first introduction to a red wolves in this area, which I thought was incredible. But immediately I saw like the sentiment of people being frustrated or upset or, or, or hatred towards them. So have there been times that you think you've been able to sway people? Um or is it still kind of a work in progress? Well, I think it's always a work in progress. But yes, I do believe I have had conversations with people who just in a normal conversation um, talk about, you know, a wolf is going to attack me. Well, there's never been a red wolf attack. Um, we don't have depredation here. We don't have a lot of livestock. There have been some goats taken, some chickens taken, Um and and so having those conversations to say there's not been any known, um, we know red wolves are very shy, very fearful of people. They're not unlike another animal that if they're sick may behave differently, but we know that a wolf is a wolf and there's been tremendous amount of study about wolf behavior. Um, I think that's been really important. The importance of the role they play in an ecosystem. I had a great conversation with somebody that came in the office, just his wife was somewhere else and he popped in and he just sat down and right off the bat said, I don't like wolves. And I said, okay, wow, <laughs> so what, are we, what the, do you want to talk yeah, about? Butterflies? He, he and went so into the wolf's den. <laughs> we had a great conversation and I don't know that I changed his mind, but I at least think I gave him some really good scientific information that maybe he won't say, I hate wolves. And so that's been good. Um, we used to do the howlings at Alligator River. We did those for about five years after I came on. And I do think that there were people there after we did a presentation and they got to hear them. I've for me, I love red yeah. wolves. They're beautiful. But for me, it's the howl. The wolf, whether I don't care what kind of wolf it is, their howl, because I'm a very sound-driven person, mm-hmm. is what resonates with me. And when we did the howlings, I was the one to walk off and try to get them to howl. So when you stand in the woods in the dark and you howl and you wait and you wait and you hear that first little noise that you know howls are coming, it just reminded me every week why I do what I do because that voice (laughs) could have been silenced had these animals gone extinct in the wild. But I do believe there were people that came and certainly got to appreciate the fact that this is an endangered species. And had it not been for the service back in the 60s, this animal would have been gone. And that there's a value in the Endangered Species Act. There is a value that there are animals on there. The red wolf did not almost go extinct like the dinosaur because of changes. It almost went extinct because of human action. And so that was an interesting conversation I had with a gentleman from Michigan about that. He came very anti-wolf, which, okay, that's fine. And you want to come and enjoy, that's cool. And once I talked to him about that, I did see that moment of, oh, I didn't think about it like that. He Mm. was very much against bringing back animals that he thought had naturally gone extinct. And I'm like, no, that's not what happened with the red wolf. Not at all. So that was, that's, again, when I, when you asked that question, that was one of the things I thought about was that guy from Michigan. And, and I do think I, I had a moment of, hmm, okay, 
Yeah. I never thought about it like that and didn't know that. So I think when I'm having conversations with people, if I can provide information they didn't know, I like to think that I did something. Did I change their mind? Did I open it a little bit? Um, that to me is a success. Not that somebody walked up like that gentleman that said, I hate wolves. I feel like when he left, he had a little more information and maybe won't say, I hate wolves. I think that to me is a success. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's incrementalism. It's it's it not has... going to go from hate to love within a 20-minute conversation no. with you. I but wish it would. <laughs> you're, you're breaking down walls. You're cracking through a little bit. But the fact that they went up and talked to you to begin yeah. with and were open-minded, didn't just scream at you. I've that had might that even too. Be a win. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They get me in the grocery store. I've <sighs> been run off the road. No. Yeah. Um, they love to get me in the meat department of the grocery store, which I think is funny. Restaurants a couple times. Um, are, are these similar people that you're, I mean, I don't usually know people? them. Wow. So wow. are they here just out of town? I have a lot of jackets and stuff that have wolf stuff. Um, if they live here, I think most people may not know me, but they know who I am and what I do. Um, and so, you know, everybody's level of, um, willingness to have a conversation with me can vary from moment to moment and for some reason people feel very at ease in the grocery store you've been run off the road though. yeah yeah wild. and then they shouted some lovely things as they went past me oh, so wow. yeah oh yeah that's i'm so sorry to hear that that's yeah rough. i mean it it was i kept the car out of the ditch and so that was cool and took a minute and just exhaled and Went wow. about my business. So I thought, you know, and, and I think the same thing. If, You're a strong person. During, during that time, if somebody wanted to do me harm, then that's on them. If it did them some good to harm me, like what? That's their problem. That's, that's not mine. Wow. I try not to take those problems on. There was a time when it was really difficult. Um, about a year, I went from work to home, work to home, because I, I never felt like I could find a place where I could go and somebody wasn't going to say something to me. I, I'm very proud of the work I do, but I have a friend of mine, and um, we were very involved in the chamber together, so went a lot of different places, and he would introduce me. This is Kim Wheeler with the Red Wolf Coalition, and immediately I feel the molecules in the room change. So I finally had to tell Steve, just say Kim Wheeler. Like, I don't want to be on I don't want to have to like yeah, sure. back up. Okay, here we go. Now I got to defend something. Just let's just be Kim Wheeler tonight. And again, very proud of what I do. But sometimes it's like, okay, just enough because I do. I people's cha faces will change. Just last week, I was talking to a local. I was in a restaurant eating, and we were chatting. And I said, you know, I don't. I don't think I've met you. I'm Kim Wheeler with the Red Wolf Coalition. He goes, oh, go. He goes, oh, and immediately face changed. Oh, you, you. you you're with the Red Wolves? I'm like, well, I'm not with the Red Wolves, but this is what I do. I saw that face change. And so immediate, I think it's a lot like politics. You start talking about it, you very quickly are going to know which side yeah. of the aisle people are on. Wow. I can't believe that it was, um, that is like, I mean, I, I can imagine you're unpopular in some circles. Absolutely. By what you do, but I had no Absolutely. idea it was to that extent. You were very okay. zen about it too. I'm okay. Wow. I mean... Like I said, I'm very proud of what I do. Sure. Um, I, I am proud to represent these animals and um, try to be that strong voice for them. They don't have a voice. Um, 
I always want to be very science driven or we always want to be very science driven and and be that strong voice and and have supporters that are strong advocates. Um, I can't always know why someone's an advocate. I may not always agree with why they're an advocate. Mm. That's a personal decision, why you like wolves or why you choose to support us. And we're so appreciative of our supporters. As a small NGO with no state or federal funding, we rely on supporters. And so um, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's humbling some days. It's very humbling some days. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, how long ago was it when you had to deal with the, you know, when you were back and forth between work and home? Um, I would say somewhere between 2013 and 2015. Okay. Yeah, that's when, wow. after that coyote litigation had happened. And, gotcha. Um, the Resource Commission was having some meetings trying to get the temperature of locals about wolves. And and there were some funny things, funny, not ha-ha, just funny things that happen. Again, I went and listened to what people had to say. Like one man stood up and it's like the Lion King. He held his baby up in the air and said, I am afraid to take her outside that a wolf is going to get her. And I remember a friend of mine turned and looked at me and I looked at her and went, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, where am I like and so again okay so then I have to remember when I'm talking and doing a presentation locally to say a wolf is not going to come take your children this is not Little Red Riding Hood or the three pigs or whatever any of those other nursery rhymes are I try to walk away from a situation with okay is this something I'm hearing a lot we were part of some um, open forum discussions, and the discussions were really about canids, not necessarily just wolves. But there was one in Hyde County and one in Terrell County, and this has been a couple years. And the one in Terrell County, I listened, and I walked away and said the people that came did not feel like they knew what was going on in the program or if they had a problem or an issue, who to call. Mm. And so I went to Fish and Wildlife and I said, hey, we had another meeting and this is how I, this is what I came out of it with. And is there a way, as you guys are moving forward, you can be more transparent in what you're doing? And I feel like they're trying. I think this website that they've, they've developed, the new website, is a great first start. There's, I looked at it really briefly today. There's a lot of good information and a lot of the questions when you were asking about mortalities yeah. is on there, population numbers, historical information. It's a really, really good website. And it's they, specifically about the Red Wolves. It is. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll grab that and I'll put... Yeah, yeah put that link on there because it, it really is a good one. Our Facebook page, my board chair, Neil Hutt, she does a phenomenal do- job with our Facebook page. Again, we're an education organization. So we, we, we try to make every component as much as we can and um, about education. We also pull um, information from other SSP facilities, um, you know, cool information that's going on, funny little things. It's not always serious, you know. Some of it's kind of upbeat and funny, but um, 
Yeah, we, we've, that's been a great avenue. I'm in charge of Instagram, doing a horrible job with Instagram. I'm, <laughs> you know, because I come into work and I think, what am I going to take a picture of? What am I doing that's interesting today? Yeah, yeah. And so I come in and say, okay, I have all day. And then before I know it, I'm locking the door to go home and I haven't posted anything. So that's tough. Instagram is tough I'm, for me too. I'm trying I've, to I've do a better job it. of that because we really saw, we just finished, we do only do two fundraisers a year in the fall and the summer. And I did do some posts on Instagram and we were really surprised. We saw a tremendous amount of new donors that we had no idea who they were or how they came to us. So we're going to do a little survey probably in the next month, just saying, hey, we'd love to know how you found us. Yeah. Um, so we can figure out what we're doing right. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't sure. even know it, which is amazing. I love that. <laughs> Yay, I'm doing something right and I didn't even know right, it. Right, exactly. It's good. Um. Have you seen the Red Wolf? I have. Well, so I'm the uh, I'm a volunteer at Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge, and as a volunteer, my responsibilities are I'm the caretaker for two captive red wolves. So I see them every day. I see Manny oh, and great. Sage. Manny's eleven. Sage is twelve, and they're all. I mean, Manny's eleven. Sage is seven, and they're awesome. I just spent last Tuesday. We have a supporter. He's a, an amazing young man. On his days off, he drives down from Surf City, which is three hours and 15 minutes, and he spends all day on the refuge looking for red wolves. He has the best luck. Wow. Amazing pictures. So Tuesday, he was coming, and I said, okay, David, I want to I travel with you. Yeah. We didn't see anything. <laughs> I spent most of the morning with him, and then I had to come back to work. He saw a wolf that afternoon. I've seen a oh, wolf, half a wolf come out of the woods and then turn around and go back. I told David, it's like they know I'm on the property. They just don't come out. I've seen a million and one bears. But um, I said, I'm going to just say I'm taking a day off. I'm going to get up early. Dusk and dawn are the best times. Although the other day he saw a wolf at 1030 in the morning. And he gave me some tips on what he does. And so I always, sort of when you go to Yellowstone, you sort of stay in one place and sort of wait for the wolves to come to you. But what David does is he rides around. Mm. at different times of the day and then kind of stays put. Yeah, yeah. He gets out and he looks, you know, can you see any tracks? Is there any scat? Is there any indication that wolves are somewhere using that area? Yeah. And so I am going to find that. I am going to see a wolf in the wild. There's a female. So right now the red wolves wear a bright orange collar. That's something the Fish and Wildlife changed. Um, so it was kind of a double-edged sword. They felt like this collar would now helped to take away that excuse. I didn't know it was a red wolf. Mm-hmm. But then it also lets you know it's a red wolf. Yeah. But there's a female, an older female, and she has, I I just posted on this guy's face, Facebook page today. I said, she is becoming a regular celebrity. He got some more photos of her. And she's an old girl. Her gray, her face is very gray. Um, but I love that because in, in looking at conservation of the red wolf, one group that I've really seen come up because people are seeing them, I call it um, uh, photography conservation. Everybody's got yeah. a camera now. Um, I mean, the money being spent on cameras, I'm, I'm just as guilty as the, as the rest, buying a nice camera or a cell phone. So many people are going out to Alligator River hoping to see a red wolf. The same thing at Pocosin Lakes. I mean, they're pretty much known for their bears, but there's a female wolf over there that I've seen maybe a couple pictures of. The ones at Alligator River more. I get emails from people, where do I go to see them? Well, 
I don't just drive. That's all I can tell you is just drive. So that photography, amateur and professional photographers, I love because they're posting their work on social media. Lots of times you can make a comment and I'll look to see the comments and look, is there an opportunity to make a comment? Maybe somebody said something that's not right and not slam them, just say, hey, I saw you said this wolf looked like she was alone and sad and say, she probably not alone just at that moment in time in that picture. She was right. by herself. And sometimes wolves are by themselves. They don't track, they don't walk around in a pack. So I always feel like there's that moment to educate somebody. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I really see photographers as being really good conservationists. And I'm, I, I have some things in the back of my mind that I want to do locally with some of those folks to, to bring their photographs kind of to the forefront, but also can help with the conservation of the red wolf. Yeah. I, I'm, it would be difficult. It seems like to, cause if they're so hard to find, so my wife and I did, uh, uh, wow, I guess right before COVID, uh, we went to Uganda to see the the uh, mountain gorillas, oh, which is incredible. Very cool. But you're almost guaranteed to see them. You're, you're almost guaranteed because they actually have. It's such a big industry. You, mm -hmm. you actually they actually have trackers and people that kind of hang with mm -hmm. them, and uh, they don't move too fast, right? So you're you know you kind of have they kind of have an idea before we even start tracking. But you can hike anywhere between an hour and and, and eight mm -hmm. to see them. It doesn't seem like you can really do that here, but it does seem like that. That goodwill, that public interest, those photographers are a huge avenue if there's only a way that you can, I don't want to say guarantee a site, but just have a little bit, um, you know, more of an assurance that someone could see them because you're exactly right. That's, that's such a great way of just seeing their majesty, their beauty, their, their, uh. Oh, they're, they're not they're, they're you know, their jaws aren't red with blood. They're, exactly. You know, and, they're gorgeous. and so that goes back to the education. I think one of the, the best programs I do is what does it mean to be a wolf? Like when they communicate, what, how do they communicate? Yeah. Their family, the great families. I mean, all those parents want to do is raise those young up. And if they have pups from the previous year, those yearlings help do that. And that's their focus and their goal. You know, it's kind of like when we did the howlings, we went two years where we couldn't get a single wolf to howl. And mm. that is hard when you have 100 people standing in the dark. But what I tried to do was still make it a great educational opportunity to talk about the program, to talk about the refuge. Like, why do we need refuge properties? They're different than national parks. National parks are for people. Refuges are for animals. And to understand that difference and why we need to have them. There were a lot of people I can remember on those really, really dark nights. And it was dark. We'd have everybody turn off their flashlights for a few minutes. And people to say, I've never stood in this kind of darkness outside because they live in urban settings. Sure. So here's another opportunity, even though the wolves didn't howl, they heard me howling like a crazy banshee in the woods somewhere. But now I've brought them on, I've told them about the program, talked about the value of the refuge. They've stood in the darkness and maybe they've seen stars in the sky that maybe they don't see on a regular basis. And I'm hoping somewhere deep inside of them, they will either learn to have an appreciation or further their appreciation for all those things. I think that's just as important sometimes. And sometimes 
going out and looking for wolves is a tremendous amount of fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sort of get like, I am not leaving. I was like that Tuesday. I am not going to leave until we see a wolf. I'm going to follow David in my car and we're going to do, but unfortunately I had to come back to the office and attend to something. So it it did bug me when about four o'clock he sent me a picture. Of course. Yeah. And I was like, ah, you're killing me. You're killing me. But I love that people go and they'll have an appreciation for Alligator River or Pocosin Lakes or wherever in the future there's another reintroduction site that um, people will learn about the habitat of the red wolf and the bears and the birds and how it is important that we have those type of properties. Yep, absolutely. And an appreciation of nature. Yes. Or a learned appreciation of nature going back to that incrementalism. That's a win right there as far as I'm concerned. Yep. That, that's a success. I agree. Do you... Um, so recently there was a success, uh, correct? About um, like kind of there was an issue when it came to the territories. So I'm not sure if you're talking about Brian. So there was a proposed rule that was several, several, several years old where the Fish and Wildlife proposed to change the territory of the Red Wolf to just federal property. Okay. Yeah, it was a, it and was it's an been rule. hanging out there. I don't know, three, four years now, maybe even more than that. I, I mean, I always knew it was hanging out there, but the Fish and Wildlife never moved anything to kind of enact that. And then, just in the last couple months, they made a press release and said, "That's done and in the drawer. It's not something that we're going to move forward with." Okay. So that was positive because certainly then that would have sort of changed the whole. So again, going back to these refuge properties, there's no fences. Wolves don't know boundaries. How in the world will you keep a population that can reproduce every year on a refuge? You can't. I mean, what are you going to have people standing around the outskirts making sure that they don't leave? So certainly that proposed rule would have been incredibly detrimental to this, this Red Wolf program. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That, that was what I was referencing. Yeah. Um, man, I can't help but think about like how to harness the, the, the current, um, you know, tourists to this area, even like signs, like, you know, cause when you drive at night, it does, it gets really dark out there if you're going to Alligator River. And if, um, you know, even just signs that saying, caution there could be red wolves in the area that that would be incredible so there there are so the fish and wildlife and the north carolina wildlife federation um have purchased four big roadside signs um certainly highway 64 which is the main thoroughfare to the outer banks and in the summer it's like a racetrack and unfortunately it's only a two-lane highway so people get in a tremendous hurry so i imagine they'll put some signs along 64 um, I was told they're going to put signs wherever they think it, signs need to be. They probably will not be just Red Wolf centered. They will be, hey, there's a lot of you know wildlife crossings. Mm-hmm. Slow down. Something else the Fish and Wildlife did is they put um, some reflective tape on the collars. So there was some concern as whether or not that reflective tape would somehow interfere with their hunting that the animals would because of the reflection. Oh, sure. Okay. But they've determined that it won't, that really the the cost benefit is is better. And so if you're traveling on a road and a canid steps out, your headlights will see that reflective tape and you'll respond. So I really feel like the, the service is doing everything that they can do mm-hmm. to try to mitigate human accidents. 
short of gunshot mortality. Um, you know, you can't teach wolves not to go on a road because they need those roads to move through their yeah. territories. Yeah. It's it's a difficult situation. It's an unfortunate situation. Um, there's been a lot of talk about um, wildlife crossings here. Um, there really aren't any. That's a longer term goal. Yeah. Um, again, Highway 64 is a two lane and they have been talking for years about four laning it, but nothing's really happened. And so... Um, that's a bigger, longer goal. I think it's a very important one. I, I think there's definitely a group somewhere that needs to spearhead that. I think the rest of us can get behind it. Um, you got to have some, I think, political connections, you know, because of Department of Transportation and so on and so forth. I'm not really sure the mechanics of how you get one built because there's so much water and canals on both sides. Uh, you're going to probably sure. have to go over rather than under. Um, because that's a whole lot of water to have to try to send a different direction. Again, is definitely something that's needed. I think there are places in our country that they show that they work. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And so, again, I think it's something that's just bubbling up to the surface. And I really hope there's a group out there or several groups that can sort of come together and spearhead and make that, like, this is what our focus is going to be. Because it's going to take a lot of political pressure to be able, I think, get that done. Right. Yeah, because it's great. You mentioned like 1.6, was it 1.6 million square miles? 1. Seven, 1.7, 1. 7, 7, yeah. Which is great, but it, but you know what you really want to be striving for is to have that as unfractured as possible. And just in this day and age, it's not easy to have that unfractured. It's, it's not. You know, um, we have a lot of wildlife. These just... These would not just be for red wolves. We have tremendous amount of beer. Di- beer. We got beer. Sundays we got beer. We got bears. <laughs> um, I don't even know the number of deer accidents that happen yeah. on Highway 64. I mean, that's always my thing about coming back from the Outer Banks at night. I drive like a little old lady because I'm just looking for eyes. Right. You know, the deer pop out so quick or a bear. And it, it does not take long for animals to start to use those animal crossings. It really doesn't. It takes like over, you know, only a couple of years mm-hmm. because if you get deer, well then guess what? You know, the wolves might even sense the deer going over Absolutely. there versus going over and the bear. So, I mean, it's it's a lot easier. It's not easier. But again, when, when you're only involving nature and not bureaucratic red tape, it's that part is easy. Yes, yeah. And a number of years back, the uh, Wildlife Resource Commission um Along the um, side of Highway 64, did barbed wire, trying to see when animals cross over, catching a little bit of fur, so they knew what was crossing and where they were crossing. Don't know where that data or that information is now. Certainly, if you were looking at where the wildlife crossing, you know, any fur that they've caught, they're going to know, like, hey, this particular spot, we get a lot of bear, we get a lot of canid, we get whatever yeah. maybe in that area. And so maybe that's a place. Again, I don't know where any of that data is and how relevant it is this far down the road. It seems to me somebody would have to do some research again to figure out where are the animals cross, where, where are a lot of animals crossing? Well, on that website you mentioned, they could do the same thing with mortalities and then put the signs you know, three miles ahead on either side. Yep. Um, if, if there's a particular area bend in the road or something. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so what, uh, you know, you mentioned that fish and wildlife has done a lot. What, what can average people do, whether they live, they live in this area, whether they live in the United States or whether they're 
you know, international listeners. So first I want to say, just because you don't live here doesn't mean you have a, you don't have a stake in these animals. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you pay into federal taxes, your federal taxes go into the endangered species program. And so you have a voice. So we always tell people, whether you live in the recovery area or North Carolina or Michigan or Texas, if you care, let your your politicians know that you care because they're the ones when funding comes up are going to be really important to try to push through that funding and make sure that this Red Wolf program always gets funding. The other, there are 44 zoos and nature centers across the U.S. that have wolves under human care. If you live in an area where there is one, go and see what you can do to volunteer. You know, I'm, I'm, I would assume that uh, zoos always like good volunteers, you know, to be able to give an educational message and, and maybe you would be able to do one about red wolves. So learn what you can go to trusted sites. You know, if you see something that seems strange, keep digging, you know, don't take what you see at your first site, um, as, as, as Bible, just keep looking, keep learning. But I, I do think letting your politicians know that you care, um, learning more if you're an educator, we have a discovery box that we send to, to classrooms, both traditional and non-traditional, um, that has pelts and skulls and books and other kinds of great literature. Oh, that's, cool. um, that's what that is. Oh, that's cool. That's what that box is there. And so we make that available free of charge. The only thing you have to do is just mail it back to me or UPS it, however you choose to do that. We have a teacher's curriculum that um, it's it's K through 12, and it teaches how to use the Red Wolf in all academics. And it was developed by my board chair, Cornelia Hutt, who is a retired school teacher, and the Fish and Wildlife many years ago. And so before COVID, a couple times a year, I would do a teacher workshop. I love to bring teachers here because they can see the Red Wolf area and kind of go through some of the fun activities to show them how they can use that curriculum. And then in the afternoon, if I could um, try to catch up with a field person, a field biologist, and um, they always tried to pick a place, maybe there were tracks and, and let people talk to them. Because the one thing I find so amusing is I could teach a class and I could say, um, yeah, red wolf females will generally dig their own dens or find their own dens and I'll get a nod, right? We go into the field and one of the biologists says, yeah, the female digs it in. And they're like, really? Oh my God, that's fascinating. And I'm like, wait a minute. I told them that earlier. I didn't get that response. So there is something about the on the field team, the the biologists. And I do agree. They are rock stars. I mean, when they talk, I'm like a three-year-old. I just sit and listen and say, yeah. why, why, why? Yeah. And so... I think that's important. Again, that's another way to connect with educators that are educating that next generation because that's where we're going to see a lot of change. I have been so incredibly humbled by the younger generation. I'm talking like elementary schoolers. We had a group out They're of New York that just God. did a fundraiser. They did like bracelets and some little Christmas ornaments and um, they raised $225 that they donated oh, to us. Solid. And there was a group of kids out in California. They do a dog, a dog wash, car wash. Half of it goes to their local um, uh, rescue, and they sent the other half to us. So <laughs> this younger generation, I am, I, I love it. Uh, there's a lot yeah. of graduate students really interested in the red wolf, and um, you know, from the biological and also also the social side. You know, how do we change opinions, and how do those opinions 
become formed. And um, a lot of really interesting work coming out of this next generation. Again, I look at someday retiring and knowing that I'll be able to find somebody that'll come in here and sort of be able to continue our work, but then also understand that it's difficult and it can be fun and inspiring. And some days you just want to hit your head against the wall, but they're willing to do the work mm. and they've kind of grown up in that, that. I have a lot of of supporters. I love the way they're raising their kids in that kind of natural setting. I wish my daughter's 31. I wish I could do it all over again, you uh, know, yeah. and do some things a little bit different. But um, yeah, the kids are um, amazing. <laughs> There's no fear. Like they're not worried that somebody's going to come up to them and say, we hate wolves, you know, they're going to eat you or they're going to take your dog. I mean, they just, they just do it because... They have a passion for it. And yeah. I, I love that. That's the time to get them. Absolutely. Too. That's Absolutely. great. Um, well, perfect. So so we started off kind of talking, You and it might have even been before the mics were on, that you were hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's I'm sure it's very hard to be hopeful. But you mentioned 2020, you feel excited about. Or 2022. Good Lord. <laughs> Hopefully not 2020 again. Mm-hmm. 2022, you feel excited about. Um how and why are you hopeful and, and what on the horizon, what does 2022 bring for Red Wolves? Well, even in the when we were in those valleys with everything going on, I just won't allow myself to give up because I feel like if I give up, then it's time to lay the keys on the desk and let somebody come out, somebody else come in. You know, what's the old, the saying, you know, nothing easy comes easy. You know, there's hard work involved. And so I do believe that has always been our mantra that we know there's hard work and we're going to do the work because we're committed to this animal. I think some of the changes within the service, um, within their own agency, again, as I mentioned, I think they're getting some good attention internally. I, I hope that they're getting more resources that they needed. The upcoming nine releases that are going to happen, just how they've brought those animals together, that they're already paired so that when you open the gate out of that acclimation pen, good, really good chance they're going to stay together. Yeah, that and seems that, really smart. that there will be reproduction this year. That's what we've got to get, reproduction. I think this uh, the service writing a new recovery plan and looking at everything they've learned and how do they take that knowledge and move it forward? Looking at um, could there be other places within the Red Wolf Historic Range to reintroduce that animal? What would that take? Hmm. You know, uh, I've been part of some conversations um, in in not writing the new recovery plan, but just talking about the things that we think a recovery plan should encompass. And it was a very diverse group. It was some people that were state agencies, some people in North Carolina, other states, other federal agencies, local landowners, some of them that didn't really care for wolves, um, NGOs. And so it was really interesting as we got into different groups to listen to everybody and then compile that data and then provide that back, the the group that is sort of um, taking care of this project. Um, providing that back because I think what that will do is give the service maybe a clearer picture not that they don't understand everything that's going on they most certainly do but as they're writing that recovery program so how do you make a recovery plan that provides the red wolf the most success right but you also have to remember they live among people 
So in that plan, where do you allow for people? Like you can't write a plan for anything that's just all that particular animal. You have to know they live among people. Yeah. And so I, I do think there was a lot of good information, even though that plan's not going to be done until 2023. I just think some of the movement, um, I, I hope the service can sometimes get out of their own way and do their work. They're, they're no different than any other government agency. You know, when totally. you're involved or close to it, it just seems unfair sometimes, some of the things that happen. But again, they're a government agency, and I really have no control over some of the things that happen. But I, I really, I think these releases give me hope. I think, again, there's been some attitude changes, and I think that's really, really important. Um, again, I go back to those photographers and all the people that are coming and wanting to see and, um, you know, the comments that I hear from people that want to come into the area, supporters of ours that are so dedicated. They just blow me away sometimes the notes that I get, you know, like, thank you for what you do. And I think, well, what have I done, you know? <laughs> and and that means a lot to me. I mean, I remember we had a supporter. He was a gentleman out of New York City, an older gentleman. I could tell by his handwriting. Every time I sent him a letter, he sent me a dollar. That dollar meant as much to me as the person that sent me $100 because I know that's all he had and he chose to give it to us. Yeah. And, it's and that just warms my heart. I mean, I think our supporters are what keep me going. You know, that little note that says, hey, got a little extra. Here's $25 and thank you for what you're doing. And that they they recognize that we're working hard. And sometimes we feel like we're taking two steps back instead of two steps forward, but they're with us. And that's important. Yeah. And it's got to be incredible to be able to reach someone in New York City or someone across, you mentioned the, the school children in California, yeah, where a lot of people here don't know, right? So you, you're getting the word out for sure. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, where and who you're getting it to. And, and of course, that will, you know, eventually that will, that will pass along through. Everyone will start to know eventually. And hopefully yeah. we can turn that sentiment around. Yeah. I mean, it's different here. We don't have a local newspaper. Internet is sketchy. It's a very rural area. So when, when you think about how do you reach people, automatically we think social media. But even in the days of COVID, when the kids were home, there were some kids that had no internet, even though the school provided them a tablet. They had to drive somewhere to be able to do their work. So there are some challenges within the recovery area of how to reach people. Again, I, I think schools are a great avenue. I'll be really glad when COVID subsides and strangers who are not employees of the school or school kids can go in and help participate in some programs. That was something we were getting ready to do when COVID hit. But right now, if you're not a parent, and I think the parents can only come in the front door, they can't go all the way through the school. And right. so to be able to go in and work with a science teacher and just do uh, a wildlife conservation, you know, that mm -hmm. I have to be very careful how I frame things, understanding that there are people that feel very strongly against these wolves. And so this whole program was really a wildlife conservation because yeah. to me, it's irrelevant whether I go in and just talk about the wolf. I want to talk about the bear and the birds yeah. and, and everything else. And so, I mean, you know, obviously the red wolf was going to slide in there. <laughs> But I did not want to go into a school and just make it Red Wolf centered and have that teacher get five phone calls from parents who hate Red Wolves. Mm -hmm. Then I get nowhere. 
Yeah. Because then they're going to say, Kim, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. But if I say we're going to talk about wildlife, yeah, then it's different. Yeah. And that's that consensus. That's that middle ground. Like, isn't it better for me to go in and do that than not have that opportunity at all? Right. Yeah. You could go in and really, uh, uh, you know, hard nose and really Absolutely. kind of t- taking no prisoners. And, yep. You know. And when I first started, I would have done that. I, yeah. But I mean, now I, I, I realize that's not, that's not the way to do right. it. That's not the way to do it. Well, Kim, I want to say I love how you've, uh, I don't know. I love how you, you're, you're experiencing a lot of challenges right <laughs> now, uh, between with the wolves themselves, with their populations at kind of, it seems like a, the lowest of lows, right? That we can count. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with your own personal well being, as you mentioned, uh, but you seem very, very Zen about it. You seem very in a really, you know, very powerful position. So, uh, well, That's again, I, I think there's a lot. You take the good and the bad with yeah. anything, and I think the good outweighs the bad. Yeah. In any given time period, it's um, again, I, 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 you know, I think red wolves have a place on this earth, and um, I am glad to be able to be in a position to feel that way, to have a tremendous um, admiration and appreciation for our supporters that um, you know, want to want to keep us moving forward and then to be that strong voice for red wolves. I mean, I always check myself and make sure what I'm getting ready to say really is a positive for the red Mm. wolf and, and to keep things, I live in reality. I don't live somewhere saying this is what you should do. I'm very realistic. I know what the challenges are. I don't, I don't put my head in the sand. They are what they are and you have to deal with them. And it's no different than any reintroduction program. You have to live in the real world because if you don't, and that's what we sometimes see from groups that come in and say, you should do this and that or the other. And I'm like, have you been here? <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I, I love it. I love the work. I, I really, really do. Uh, it's hard some days for me to believe I've been here for 16 years. So <laughs> I hope I'm here for another 16. Well, great. Well, I hope so too. And thank you so much for talking to me. Well, thank you for uh, having been... me. I really, I've enjoyed this. It's yeah, me too. It's this been has been fun. super interesting. Yeah. Um, real quick, you kind of mentioned where they were, uh, they were going to be, you know, if they were going to be re- relocated from this area. Is that a talk that people are having that they make it moved? I don't know that. So it would be a second reintroduction site. So the, uh, okay. the recovery plan that they're using now called for three reintroduction sites. Um, and a total of 230 animals, not knowing how many would be. There was a reintroduction site that was um, tried in the Great Smoky Mountains. It lasted about five or six years, maybe five or six years. I'm not great with dates. I'd have to look it up. But um, the wolves were leaving the park, and they had low pup um, survival rate. So they ended that program, gathered the wolves back, and brought them back here to North Carolina. So I think individually there are people and groups talking I don't know because I don't work for the service. Um, I think it's on their radar. I just don't know where on the radar it is. And then, you know, in my final thoughts, I'll say to you on that note is they have to get it right here in North Carolina. You've got to solve the problems because if they go to another state, if I'm that state's agency, I'm going to say how to go in North Carolina. And if you go, eh, uh, not so good. We still have these challenges. That state's going to say, then why will it work here? Because people are people. 
Well, thank you again so much. This has been incredible. <laughs> it's been great. Um, and I really appreciate the hard work you're doing and the sacrifices you're well, putting you. for these Red Wolves. Thank this you. I appreciate that. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care.